all find our way back to our seats. Thank you. Good morning once again and a, a warm welcome on this Friday morning. Smaller crowd than usual. We have a, a holiday weekend here. In case we haven't met yet, my name is Jason and I have the privilege of serving here as the summer interim pastor. So it's a joy to be with you this morning. And over the summer, we have been doing a sermon series on the grand narrative of scripture, the, the big picture. And the way I've kind of described understanding the Bible is like building a puzzle with many different pieces. And what we're trying to do in these two months is build the outline of the puzzle, starting with the corner pieces and filling out the frame. And that way, as you do your verse by verse, chapter by chapter study through the Bible, you have a frame of reference in which to put your pieces of the puzzle. Another way I thought of it, if we go to the first slide, is like a maze. If you've ever been to one of these mazes where the walls are taller than you, unless you have a fantastic sense of direction, all you can see is what's around you. Like, well, where am I? Where do I go? But if we take a more aerial view on the next slide, we can say, ah, that's where I am, this is the path I'm on, and here's how I go to, to where I want to be. And so that's kind of the, the 30,000 foot view that we are trying to take of the Bible this summer. And if we jump to the next slide, what we've seen so far is that the Bible indeed is a story. The opening chapters inform us that the setting of the story is the heavens and the earth. And God is the, the main character, or narrative terminology, he's the hero. And the hero's desire, as per Genesis 1 and 2, is that his image bearers rule the world on his behalf. The problem was, the image bearers gave the rule over to a serpent. And so even until this day, there is a serpent who is ruling the world. But that problem did not change God's desire for his image bearers to rule the world. And so, much of the Bible, from Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 19, is where God is restoring what has been lost. And finally, in the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20 to 22, that is where, once again, the image bearers will rule the earth. It's the resolution of the entire story. And we have seen that Genesis 3.15 was one of those key corner pieces in the puzzle. And Genesis 3.15 had pointed out to us that there would be a promised seed of the woman, a son who would strike the serpent's head, bring humanity back to the garden, and restore the rule of the earth to God's image bearers. And so we had traced the promise of seed from one generation to the next to the next, all the way through the book of Genesis, to Judah, who was one of the 12 tribes, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and became the 12 tribes. And actually, before Judah even, sorry, we had the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant, at a summary level, promised land, seed, and blessing. And we saw that that covenant has yet to be fulfilled. So the, the promise of the seed was passed down to Judah, and then the, the nation of Israel moved to Egypt, where they were enslaved for about, well, they were in Egypt for 400 years, and they were enslaved. God sent Moses to bring them out of Egypt in the Exodus, and it was at Sinai that he gave them the Mosaic Covenant, which we looked at last week. And in a nutshell, the Mosaic Covenant promised 
blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So in as much as it depended on human response, it was conditional. If you obey, you will be blessed. Also, last week we saw the land covenant, Deuteronomy 29 and 30, that basically said, Israel, you are not going to be able to keep the Mosaic covenant. Therefore, the curses of that covenant will come upon you. You will be scattered. You will go first into captivity in a single nation, namely Babylon. Now, we don't know that yet in the story. And then later, you will be scattered among all the nations of the earth. And that's what happened after the time of Christ. But despite all that scattering, God himself would circumcise their hearts. That would bring about repentance, that would allow God to bless them according to the covenant, and he would bring them back into the land, multiply their population, and bless them immensely. And so that's where we've been so far in the story. And after Deuteronomy, where we ended... Oh, actually, let's just stay on the previous slide. Yes, that's fine. So after Deuteronomy... Joshua will take over from Moses, and he will lead Israel as a nation into Canaan, where they will conquer the Canaanites, not completely, partially, and then they divide up the land among the 12 tribes. And then we have the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it was chaos. There was a lot of judgment that the Lord allowed to come upon Israel. And finally, the people said, we want a king like all the other nations around us. So they picked a man named Saul, tall and handsome, and made him king. But Saul was a failure. Uh, in fact, it's always interesting when you read a narrative, how does the narrator introduce a character for the first time? And the first time we meet Saul, he is a lost donkey finder, a finder of lost donkeys. And he can't even find them. <laughs> and that's the guy that they want to be king, a lost donkey finder. Furthermore, Saul is not part of the tribe of Judah. He's actually from the tribe of Benjamin, so he shouldn't have been king anyways. And so Saul will fail, and God will send the prophet Samuel to anoint a young man named David, who will become King David. Now this term, the anointed one, in Hebrew it would be Mashiach, from which we get Messiah. And the, the Greek translation would be Christos, or Christ. And so these three words mean the same thing. The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And it's all the same word. And there's a great description that uh, as Saul is looking for someone to come join his service, and one guy stands up and says, oh, I know this guy named David. And here's the description of him. David is a skillful musician, a valiant, mighty man, a warrior, skillful in speech, handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So what contrast to the lost donkey finder? And so David enters the service of Saul, the king, and at that time there was a Philistine giant named Goliath. And the way the narrator describes Goliath is he is six cubits tall, which is about nine and a half feet, ten, uh, ten feet tall, about three meters, his armor weighs 5,000 shekels, although some manuscripts would say 6,000. And the head of his spear is 600 shekels. And so if Goliath were wearing a sports jersey, his number would be 666. Six, six. Oh, and by the way, his armor is like scales. 
as the narrator would say. So I ask you, what animal has scales? A snake, a serpent. And so that's the way the narrator is telling us this guy, Goliath, is serpent seed from head to toe. And we have the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the promised seed will strike the serpent's head. And that's exactly what David does. First with the, the stone from his sling, and then he cuts off David's head. Now I'm sure you and I have all heard sermons on David and Goliath and the way we apply it as well. If we have faith, we can slay the metaphorical giants in our life some financial problem, or a bad boss, or whatever difficulty we have. And with respect to, to those preachers, that's not the purpose of the story. We are to stand in awe and say, wow, God is keeping his Genesis 3.15 promise, that the promised seed is striking the serpent's head. And so David, at this point in the story, seems like a strong and legitimate contender for that promised seed. And all through the story, every generation, we're always hoping that the next son who is born will be that promised seed. So, if you would, turn with me in your Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And as you're turning there, let me just set a stage for what's happening in the narrative. When David killed Goliath, that was the first of many military victories for David. And so David grew in power and popularity, and eventually he became king, and all 12 tribes were united under David. And so Israel had reached the peak of its power, its prosperity under David, and everything was going well. Now, later, David will fall. He will sin grievously, and things will go downhill. But at this point, David is at his peak, and he decided that he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He saw that the Ark of the Covenant was resting in a tent, in the tabernacle. He said, I want to build a house, a temple for the Lord to stay in. But that wasn't God's plan. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to tell David a message. And this is where we'll look in some detail at 1 Chronicles 17, starting in verse 7. And, and this is God speaking to Nathan, the message that Nathan is to give to David, just so we know who, who's talking here. Now it starts this way, verse 7. Now therefore, thus shall you, Nathan, say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a prince over my people Israel. So to be a prince over over my people Israel. Well, way back in Genesis 17, we looked at this a few weeks ago, the Lord had promised that from Abraham would come kings, would come royal rule. And by Genesis 49, when Jacob was blessing the 12 sons, he promised that Judah, that from Judah, the scepter, the rule of Israel would never depart. And now we have one who is from the tribe of Judah, David, who has reached this point. He is the ruler of Israel. So verse 8. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And that comes back to Genesis 12 where God has said to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse. So all of these surrounding nations filled with serpent seed have been trying to kill the promised seed, the seed of the woman, and God said, no, 
you curse that, I'm going to curse you. So God allowed David to have all these military victories. Continuing on in, in verse 8. And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. Maybe that reminds us of what God said to Abraham. I will make your name great, Abraham. And now it's David's name that will be great. Verse 9. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. So the Lord was granting Israel a place to live, as, as he had been promising all along from Abraham on down. And they would have peace in the land. Uh, and this might remind us of the land covenant from last week, that there would be no one to make them afraid, that judgment would fall upon their enemies. In verse 10, uh, the second part, the Lord says, Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. Now, house here, it means more of a dynasty, a, a political empire, if you will, that will stay within the line of David. And that's kind of ironic, because David had said, I want to build the Lord a house, and the Lord says, no, I will build you a house. So verse 11, when your days are fulfilled, then you must go to be with your fathers, and I will set up your seed after you, who will be from your sons and I will establish his kingdom. So here the Lord is saying that after David's death, someone among David's descendants would be granted the kingdom. And I think many have made a mistake here of thinking this is referring to Solomon. But actually it can't refer to Solomon because it's saying the promised seed here in verse 11 will come from David's sons. So it's going to be, at a minimum, David's grandson. And, and at this point in the story, we don't know how far down, but it's not going to be Solomon. It's going to be after Solomon. And, uh, where are we? Uh, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 12, he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Well, Solomon did build a temple. And that's why a lot of people have thought that this is referring to Solomon. But actually, this is referring to the promised seed, the Genesis 3.15 promised seed. And so as we look around the Bible, well, is there another place where a temple is built? And in fact, there is, and that would be Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. There is a, Ezekiel describes a massive new temple that is in Jerusalem, and in fact, I happen to have written my master's dissertation on Ezekiel's temple. So I've spent a great deal of time studying it. It's quite fascinating. And I believe that that is the temple that the Lord Jesus will build when he comes back to earth. And he will build it there in Jerusalem, and he will center his kingdom. The center of his rule will be from his throne in that temple. Verse 13. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. So whoever this promised seed is, there's a special father-son relationship. And maybe that reminds us of, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. 
special father-son relationship. And I will not take away my loving kindness, my loyal love, my favor from him, as I took it from him who was before you. That's referring to Saul. Saul was abandoned by God. But the Lord will never abandon this promise to you. Verse 14, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So this verse quite literally would say, I will cause him to stand forever. And so don't miss this. We're talking about an eternal person. God will bring an eternal person who will reign on a throne and over a kingdom forever. And if we're talking about someone who will rule forever, that means he has to take out the serpent who is ruling the world. And that means that the promised seed in 1 Chronicles 17 is the same as the Genesis 3.15 promised seed. So if we can kind of summarize on the next slide what we're talking about here, this is what we call the Davidic covenant in this chapter. And basically, God promises that a descendant of David will have an eternal house or eternal dynasty, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom that is ruled by an eternal person. Now what happens is after David, we, see, we find Solomon. And if we jump to the next slide, in 1 Chronicles 28, this is David speaking. He says, he, referring to the Lord, has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Don't miss this. He's not sitting just on David's throne. It's the throne of the Lord. In the next slide, we'll kind of say the same thing. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of his father David. And so what's really remarkable here is that there's this merging happening between the throne of Yahweh, the throne of the Lord, and the throne of Israel. They're becoming one. And so the kingdom of God, kingdom of Israel, are becoming one. And then how suitable is it that when we get to Jesus Christ, he is both a descendant of David and he is Yahweh in the flesh who will be the ruler of this kingdom. It's very, very fitting. But what happens to this Davidic covenant? We're still waiting for this to happen, aren't we? Well, in the New Testament, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, As you turn there, uh, let me describe what's happening. We are introduced to a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, in English, their names might not ring any bells or mean much to us, but if we were first-century Jews, their names would jump off the page at us because Zechariah means God remembers, and Elizabeth means God's covenant. So here we have a couple... Their names mean God remembers God's covenant. And Elizabeth happens to be related to a young woman named Mary. And an angel, the angel Gabriel, will appear to Mary. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30, speaking to Mary. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That word favor, that, that's the same thing that God has said back in 1 Chronicles 17, he would not take away from the promised seed. The same word. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb 
and bear a son. Right from Genesis 3.15, we've been waiting for a son to be born. And you shall call his name Jesus. Well, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And he will be great. Didn't we just read that in 1 Chronicles 17? Great name. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Again, that special father-son relationship. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Wow, are we seeing connection after connection after connection happening here? Verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So this is the Davidic covenant. And the angel, Gabriel, is saying that the son who's born to Mary is Jesus, and he is the promised seed of the Davidic covenant, which goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So at, at last, the son, the promised son, has been born. And it is Jesus. And so if we can kind of summarize where we are in everything, if we jump to the next slide here, we started with the Genesis 3.15 promise of a, a seed who would strike the serpent's head. We followed that seed promise down to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, which promised three major things, land, seed, and blessing. And so we might understand the Abrahamic covenant as the foundation of God's covenant program, where the land promise is amplified by the land covenant. We saw that last week. The seed promise is amplified by the Davidic covenant. And as you might guess, next week we'll look at the new covenant, where that will amplify the blessing aspect. And so really these all fit together. Uh, and we are waiting. We are waiting for the fulfillment of these covenants because none of them have been fulfilled. And so we know as we move along the story, uh, God's story through history, God must fulfill these. And so we are waiting for a time when Israel will come back to the land, when the, the Davidic descendant will reign on the throne over the world, and then the serpent will be struck, and the image bearers of God will once again rule the earth. And so we long for that time. And you might be wondering, well, that's great. What about for you and me? You know, how do we bring a text such as this, or the covenants, to ourselves? You know, we're not David. We're not descendants of David. And so the covenant does not have a direct application to us, but it still has significance to us. Great significance. One thing that strikes me is we can simply marvel at how God is working out his story in history how he is bringing his promise of Genesis 3.15 to pass, how we've seen it developing as we move through the Bible. And I think one of the most important tasks that I can do as a Bible teacher, as a pastor, is to point you to Jesus, to simply marvel at the supremacy of Christ, how marvelous he is. And as per the Davidic covenant, the kingdom of God is coming to earth. Jesus will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. He will rule the world. 
And so that begs a very important question. What is your relationship to this man, Jesus, the God-man? You know, many Christians say their faith is about a relationship with Jesus, and, and that's true. But I would say that everybody, dead and alive, has a relationship to Jesus. It's just, what's the nature of that relationship? Because on the one hand, Jesus could be the terrifying judge who will condemn you to eternal hell. On the other hand, he could be the loving Savior who will resurrect you and welcome you into the kingdom. And he is willing to welcome you. If we come to him, if we respond in faith, if we believe in his death, burial, resurrection, that he died, died in our place for our sins, if you plead for mercy for your sins on that basis, he promises that he will grant you access to his kingdom. And so if you have never done that, or if you have questions about that, or maybe you're not sure, I would be happy to talk with you at any time. It can be after the service, you can call me or message me on the church phone, and I would be most happy to meet with you and talk about those things. And so at this time, I'll invite our musicians to come on back up, and we're going to sing a song that emphasizes the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. It's called All Glory Be to Christ, and I think it really holds out uh, what we're talking about in this message. It's a familiar tune uh, to many of you, I'm sure. It's to the tune of Pog Lang Syne, sung frequently at New Year's celebrations. But they've changed the words, of course. Uh, it's a, now a Christian song. So let's, uh, if you're comfortable, feel free to stand and uh, we'll sing this song together. Let's pick it up a key. Let him run 